0: Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, we read, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. In Mark chapter 8, remember the Chapter has moved from the servant's provision in feeding the multitudes in verses 1 through 10, to the servant's provocation as he deals with the religious leaders in verses 11 through 13, to the servant's patience in verses 14 through 21, and then the servant's power in verses 22 through 26 as he heals the blind man. Now the servant is. Prompted to ask a question in verses 27 through 30. And the first question concerns the servant's identity. And the second really has more to do with our identity. Most of you are familiar with the story of the pushy man or the pushy woman who makes his or her way to the front of the line at the ticket counter or the waiting room or the police receptionist who barges to the front of the line and demands to be seen. And full of themselves, they typically say, Don't you know who I am? And invariably, the person will say, we have an emergency. There's a person here who doesn't know who they are. Please come and help them recognize themselves. Yeah, we know the story. We might be reading this story and think, does Jesus not know who he is? The Lord Jesus is hinted at his death in John chapter 2, verse 9, and John chapter 3, verse 14. But soon Jesus will clearly teach his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he has to die, that he will come back to life in verses 31 through 33. We have every reason to believe that the disciples of Jesus had a sort of messianic expectation that most people had in the first century. The Jewish people living in the first century envisioned a Messiah who would liberate them from the bondage, the economic bondage and social bondage and and political bondage of the Roman Empire. These were people who were looking for a Messiah who would make their lives in the here and now better. And so, Peter's confession will reveal that the source of the information comes not from himself, but from the Father. We don't get that in Mark's Gospel, but in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Matthew says, has Jesus saying to Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Peter's declaration isn't just simply gossip from the crowd, but guidance, supernatural guidance from on high. And Jesus and his disciples will take a scenic stroll to beautiful Caesarea Philippi. And the scenic surroundings will prompt a rather startling question and a suggestive conversation. Now, I want to help you put things in perspective for just a moment. As you've gone through Mark's gospel, chapter one and chapter five and chapter seven, the clock has been ticking. As a matter of fact, if you're following chronologically, the first year of Jesus's ministry is past and the second year of Jesus's ministry is past. And we're coming up to the end of the third year. It's been three years. And by the way, there's months that Jesus has to live at this point. One third of the New Testament is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. He has literally weeks to live. The clock is ticking. Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. The area of Caesarea Philippi, by the way, is one of the most beautiful and picturesque in all of Israel. For those of you who have had the opportunity to go to Israel, or you've made the journey with me. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Galilee, right near the base of Mount Hermon. And it forms the headwaters of the Jordan River and feeds into the Galilee. It's lush and filled with underground springs. As a matter of fact, the territory would separate the area that belonged to Herod and the territory of Philip. In the ancient world, it was called Baalinas or Balinus, because this was the place where Baal was worshipped. George Adam Smith, who was famous for his geographical descriptions of the Holy Land, he described Banius or Panias. Or Caesarea Philippi as, quote, a deep gorge through which there roars a headlong stream. An old Roman bridge takes you over a tangle of trees and brushwood and ferns. And then you break into the sight of this high cliff. And inside of the cliff, there is this deep cave or cavern. And part of the upper rock has been fallen. And from the debris of the boulders and shingles, there bursts this incredible, living spring coming up out of the water and it just automatically turns into this full born river. The place is a very sanctuary of waters, he writes. As you stand within the charm of it, you understand why the early Semites adored the Baalim or plural for Baal, of the subterranean waters, even before they raised their gods to heaven and thanked them for the rain. This must have been one of the chief dwellings of the Baalim, perhaps Baal Gad of the book of Joshua, unquote. Professor Blaylock in his Um, article in Zondervan's Pictorial Dictionary of the Bible writes, when the Greeks came alert as ever for the deity of the place, they founded a shrine for Pan and called it Paneo. And the district of Paneas, Herod's son Philip the Tetrarch named it Caesarea or Caesarea Philippi to honor the prince and to distinguish it from his fathers, similarly named port off the coast of Palestine unquote in the countryside, you can see the remains of the Greek culture and the Roman culture. And one of the things that you need to understand about this particular place, it was celebrated for its religious diversity and plurality. You could go to Panaeus or Caesarea Philippi. It was this place is home for ancestor worship and Caesar worship. This was the place where people would celebrate the Greek god Bacchus, who was also called Pan. This was the place where people would go to party. Think of it in terms of Las Vegas. What goes on in Panaeus stays in Panias. Why is this important? Because in the atmosphere and the environment of religious pluralism, anything goes. No thought was too weird. No thought was too bizarre. All religious ideas and philosophies were welcome. Except one. Except one. Which one do you suppose that was? It was the worship of the the true and the living God. It was the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the future emperor of Espasian, by the way, would launch his attack against the Jews and the northern Galilee from this particular place. He would assemble his army and march toward the Galilee. And according to Josephus in the When he begins there and he begins the march, he will kill one million Jews and he will enslave another million Jews. And the headwaters of the Jordan will choke with the blood of dead Jews. In verse 27, look what it says. Coming to this place, he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember what I've asked you to do to the text. I've asked you to ask questions of the text. And when you do, when you look at this, he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? What prompts the question? Curiosity? I don't think so. By the way, what you know about Jesus so far, does he ask questions because he doesn't know the answer? That can't be the reason. The answer that you give determines your eternal destiny. This is why this is such an important question. Those of you who listen to my radio program, you'll hear me say often when I'm talking to a caller as we're discussing different issues, I'll often say, tell me what you think about Jesus. Who is he? Tell me what you think about Jesus. Because if you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're. That's exactly right. You can't get this most important question wrong. The disciples need to have a deep, personal appreciation and conviction concerning the identity of Jesus. And it's also true of you. It's also true of you. At some point, you must ask the question and answer the question, Who is Jesus? And as soon as the disciples will come to this knowledge and understanding, Jesus will begin to unfold some important things about the future, about their own future, about the personal path of devotion, which will ultimately lead to the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question will invite us to consider the identity of Jesus. And later, in verses 34 through 38, is the heart of discipleship. And so look at the suggestions that begin to emerge in verse 28. So they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. The overwhelming evidence suggests that even the enemies of Jesus judged him to be a righteous man, a good man, a charming man. And you might again ask the question, well, what does that mean? On the surface, the opinions of men seem flattering. Who wouldn't want to be compared to John the Baptist? Who wouldn't want to be compared to Elijah? Who wouldn't want to be compared to one of the prophets? But the the problem is the answers are all wrong. They're all incomplete. You see, even if you have what on the surface looks like a flattering opinion of Jesus A wrong opinion is more than just wrong. It's dangerous love him or hate him, John the Baptist changed the landscape in the first century. If we could go back in time, you would understand that Jesus himself would say of John the Baptist that among women there's no one who's been born who is greater than him. He would be martyred for his message and clearly John the Baptist did a great work for God. He was chosen by God. He was gifted by God. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He prepared men for that kingdom and you might think, well, All of that sounds pretty good. But this caused some people to think that maybe Jesus was just the forerunner of a future Messiah. Or like Herod, that maybe somehow the spirit of John the Baptist had been somehow incorporated into Jesus. Elijah was considered by many people the greatest miracle prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah was also a brilliant teacher. As a matter of fact, you'll remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is on that mount and all of a sudden Moses appears and Elijah appears, Moses representing all of the law and Elijah all of the prophets and to this very day observant Jews leave a vacant chair during Passover for Elijah to occupy Elijah's miracles included feeding a woman and her son in 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 14 and remember of bringing back someone from the dead no wonder some suggested that Jesus was a great prophet maybe even the greatest prophet Maybe he was a great prophet for that day and that time. Was Jesus a great prophet from the past? Did he possess some sort of supernatural spirit or power that came from some supernatural source? Matthew's gospel even adds Jeremiah as one of the candidates. In what way would he be like Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was hated and despised and confronted by the religious leaders. And Jesus was hated and despised and confronted by the religious leaders. Both Jeremiah and Jesus were rejected. But honor from men can often be dishonor from God. Ernest Renan, a French skeptic, said, quote, Jesus was the greatest religious genius that ever lived. His beauty is eternal. His reign will never end. He is in every respect unique and nothing can be compared to him, unquote. And that sounds beautiful and flattering. But he didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the sinless Son of God and he didn't believe that He died on the cross for your sin and rise from the dead for your justification. Because the confession of men will often fall short. Jesus can't be less than what He said about Himself. Jesus can't be Less than what the Bible says about him. So why is a right view of Jesus important? And why is a wrong view of Jesus dangerous? Well, remember to the Marxist, Jesus is a peasant who challenges the elite power base. To the socialist, Jesus is a person who wants to redistribute the wealth. According to Ashtara or Earlene Chaney, Jesus is the master mystic of all time who realized Christ consciousness, a state of higher consciousness in their way of thinking. Jesus isn't the savior from sin, the incarnation of God. According to Baha'i, Jesus was not the only begotten son of God who came down from heaven, crucified and resurrected, nor the unique savior. Mary Baker Glover Eddy, the founder of Christian science, says. Quote, Jesus Christ is not God as Jesus himself declared, but the Son of God. Unquote. According to the Church of New Jerusalem, Emanuel Swedenberg, quote, this belief in the Trinity is the source and the only source from which have sprung monstrous heresies concerning God and introduced into the Church death as well. Unquote. The list is endless of false views of Jesus. Ekankar and Paul Twitchell, quote, do not put Jesus in a special category for all saviors and prophets who come to earth to help mankind did their part and passed on the glory of the heavenly kingdom. Unquote. The foundation of human understanding. Roy Masters, quote, you must. Not have any concept of what Christ is like or God is like. It must all be an inward revelation process, unquote. In other words, it's wrong to have any idea about God. It's wrong to have any idea about Christ unless you do it supernaturally and mystically and visibly on the inside. Or unless, of course, that revelation is, well, I think that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son who came from heaven. The third, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existent, one person with two natures if that's the conclusion well it must be wrong Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. According to Charles Taze Russell, he writes, quote, The incarnation is scripturally erroneous. Indeed, if he, Christ, had been incarnate being, he could never have redeemed mankind, unquote. The local church, Witness Lee, has him, quote, he, is, he has God's nature. And we also have God's nature. He is no longer God's only begotten son. Now, by his resurrection, he has become God's firstborn son, Romans 8:29. And we are the many sons of God, Hebrews 2.10. What's wrong with that? It sounds right. It is right. Only partially right. Where it's wrong is he has God's nature. And we have God's nature. That's not true. You are not God and you will never be God. I know this comes as a shock and a surprise to some of you. The Masonic Lodge, a former Mason, reports, quote, Freemasonry carefully excludes the Lord Jesus from the Lodge and the chapter, repudiating his mediatorship, rejects his atonement, denies and disowns the gospel, frowns upon his religion and his church and ignores the Holy Spirit. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Rajneesh Foundation International, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh to tell you the truth, Bhagwan says, Jesus is a mental case. He's a fanatic. He carries the same kind of mind as Adolf Hitler. He's a fascist. He thinks that only those who follow him will be saved, unquote. There's no shortage of opinions about Jesus. Ironically, the Jesus seminar that denies the deity of Jesus made this startling and ironic statement, quote, beware of finding a Jesus entirely congenial to you, unquote. There's no shortage of people who claim either to be the incarnation or the reincarnation. According to some estimates, there have been at least 1,100 leaders in different parts of the world in the last 40 years who have claimed to be Christ and who have claimed to come from heaven. Are false Christs dangerous? ask the parents of the children who Wayne Bent sexually assaulted in northern New Mexico ask the husbands of the wives that he seduced ask the families of the 76 people who died as they blindly followed David Koresh in Waco ask the families of the people who followed Jim Jones in South America ask the families of Heaven's Gate who were seduced by Marshall Applewhite in 1997 as they hoped and prayed that a comet would deliver them from this existence and they committed mass suicide ask the families of jose luis de jesus miranda leader of the growing and grace cult in, in latin america ask the people whose families follow sun young moon who's the founder of the unification church who regards moon as their blessed heavenly father and the lord of the second advent So which Jesus do you go with? The great martyred man? The great man who leaves us an example of wisdom and righteousness? One of the great teachers and prophets of all time? A great man who reveals important things about God and religion? One more man of God who makes a significant contribution so that we can study comparative religion? Jesus must be everything that he said he is. He might be more, but he can't be less. And look at verse 29. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. In the old King James, it reads this way. And he saith unto them, Eperoteo." It's one word in the Greek language. It means to question or to ask. It's in the imperfect tense. It suggests that this is repetitive. He keeps asking, Peter, who do you say that I am? James, who do you say that I am? John, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think about me. Tell me what you believe about me. Tell me what you think. It's emphatic, but you, who do you say that I am? The implication is it's asked. It's continually asked. It was continued to be asked. The question is critical and crucial. And it requires a concentration of thought. It requires correct belief. It requires a genuine confession. Who do you think he is? Be careful. Be careful. Because the answer... That you give. Eternity hangs in the balance. One clever seminarian wrote on the bathroom walls of Princeton College. Whom do men say that I am? You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being. The kerygma of which we find the ultimate meaning in our interpersonal relationships, unquote that even if you don't understand a person's opinion, it's still an opinion. The fact that Jesus asks the question does not mean that he's unsure of his own identity. Peter responds, Ho Christos, you are the Christ, the anointed one. It transliterates the... The the Hebrew Messiah or Messiah. Jesus is the long and expected Messiah of the Jews. Peter says you are the Christ, the anointed one, the long expected Messiah. And we know that Peter receives this information as a result of direct and divine revelation, according to Matthew 16, 16. Remember, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven and Matthew alone adds the son of the living God. And the evidence suggests that Peter has some intellectual understanding. He he knows something is happening in his life. There's something profound. There's something personal. There's some supernatural conviction. I need to ask you something. When Peter makes this declaration, is that the end of his troubles? No. No. Will he ever make a mistake ever again? Yes. Will Peter sin again? Yes. But something has happened. Peter can't continue to live a self-centered existence. If Jesus is really the Messiah, if Jesus is really the Messiah, if he's really the Messiah, then there has to take place something. He has to live for him in total surrender. By the way, in the Old Testament, people were anointed with oil for special services. Priests and kings for example. It came to carry the idea of a special closeness to God, a consecration to God's service, imbument with power from on high in order to accomplish specific tasks. There's an old old hymn, I have seen the vision and for self I cannot live. Life is worse than worthless unless all I give. When you come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah, then something has to happen. What do you think about Jesus? Whatever you think about Jesus, if what you think about Jesus hasn't caused you to live differently and think differently and speak differently and act differently, then probably you have the wrong idea about Jesus. This confession of Peter will save the soul, and it lays the foundation for the church. The very life and the survival of the soul rests on this simple yet profound conviction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, If Jesus Christ is not true God, how could he help us? If he is not true man, how could he help us? The biblical view of Jesus is that he is one person with two natures. He is completely God and he is completely human. There were strange prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. Peter would have had access to all of this information. In the book of Genesis, he is called the seed of the woman and Shiloh, which means rest in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So whatever else the Messiah must be, he must be human and he must cause rest. He might be more, but he can't be less. In Exodus, the Messiah is the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. And remember, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Leviticus, he's the anointed high priest of his people, Leviticus 8:7. Images and symbols include the star of Jacob and the brazen serpent in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, someone in the first service asked me, How in the world is the Messiah, the brazen serpent? Because remember, Jesus is the one who's lifted up. Remember, the brazen serpent in the wilderness, the children of Israel were starting to be bit by deadly serpents and they were dying all around. And the Lord orders Moses to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And everyone who looks at this serpent on the pole would be healed. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. He might be more, but he can't be less. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Messiah is the prophet like Moses and the great rock in Deuteronomy 18:15. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord's hosts in Joshua 5-13. In Judges, he's the messenger of the Lord in Judges 2-1. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. In 1 Samuel, he's the great judge. In 2 Samuel, he's the seed of David. In 1 Kings, he's the Lord God of Israel. And in 2 Kings, he's the God of the cherubim or the angels. He might Be more, but he can't be less. How is all of this possible? When we continue the journey through the Messianic promises in the Old Testament, you read that Messiah is the God of our salvation in 1 Chronicles 16.35. The God of our fathers in 2 Chronicles 26. Add to that the Lord of heaven and earth in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. The covenant keeping God in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. The God of providence the whole book of Esther. The risen and returning redeemer in Job 19.25. And in the various titles in the book of Psalms, he's called the anointed Son, the Holy One, the Good Shepherd, the King of glory in psalm two seven in psalm sixteen ten in psalm twenty three one in psalm twenty four seven he might be more, but he can't be. He's the wisdom of God in Proverbs chapter 8. He's the one above the sun in Ecclesiastes. He's the chief among 10,000 altogether lovely in the Song of Solomon chapter 5. He's the virgin born Emmanuel. He is wonderful and counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the man of sorrows in Isaiah seven fourteen, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 15, 23, Isaiah 53. He might be more... But he can't be less... He's the Lord, our righteousness in Jeremiah 23, 6. And how can we fail to mention what the rest of the Old Testament reveals about the Messiah in Lamentations? He's the faithful and compassionate God in Lamentations 3:22. Or dare we include the Lord who is there in Ezekiel? He is the stone that came from heaven and destroys the kingdoms of this world, the son of man and the son of God in Daniel. He is the king of the resurrection in Hosea, 13 through nine. He's the God of the battle and the giver of the Holy Spirit in Joel chapter 2. He's the God of hosts and the plumb line in Amos 4.13. He's the destroyer of the proud in Obadiah 8. He's the risen prophet, the God of the second chance, the one who is long-suffering in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. He's the God of Jacob who was born in Bethlehem, the God who pardons in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. The avenging God, the bringer of good news in Nahum chapter 1, verse Verse two, the everlasting, the pure, the glorious, the anointed one in Habakkuk chapter one, verse 12, Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14, Habakkuk chapter three, verse 13. He's the king of Israel in Zephaniah three fifteen. He's the desire of the nations in Haggai chapter two, verse two. He's seven. He's the branch. He's the builder of the temple. He is the king of the triumphal entry. Entry. He's the one who is pierced. He's the king of the earth in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. And Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12. He's the son of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. He's the one who reconciles the fathers to their sons. He might be more. But he can never be less. Look what it says in verse 30. Then he strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about him. Again, we have to ask the question, why? Because remember, they have an incomplete understanding of Jesus. Let me just caution you. If you have an incomplete understanding of Jesus, it's better to keep your mouth shut. But guess what? The truth about Jesus is about to unfold. How is it possible for one person to have two natures? How is it possible for one person to be both God and man? How is it possible for him to live and die on a cross for your sin and rise from the dead for your justification? How is that possible? Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about it, but they better keep their Bible shut. Huh? Because if they open up their Bible and they turn to Genesis and they turn to Exodus and they turn to Leviticus and they turn to Numbers and they turn to Deuteronomy, all of a sudden the Bible fairly shouts the identity of the Messiah. Why not now? The disciples were just beginning to grasp what it means that he's the Messiah. The disciples need to know the truth and they need to know the truth in an accurate way. And one of the most harmful things a person can do is communicate an inaccurate or a false concept of Jesus as the Messiah. Louis Barbieri makes this comment, quote, It is significant that the identification of Jesus as Messiah occurs at this juncture in Mark's gospel. To this point, there had been many questions and discussions concerning the person of Jesus Christ. That is now clear. From this point on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples what that would mean, for it would ultimately lead to his death and resurrection. And all of this was key. Keeping with the Lord's will. Confession is just the beginning of the journey. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. That's just the beginning of the journey. There's so much more to know. And there's so much more to study. This is why we, we take our time. This is why we teach the Bible. This is why we open it up book by book and chapter by chapter. Jesus is everything that he says about himself. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He might be more, but he can't be less. Jesus said that I came down from heaven, that my father sent me. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. He has to be everything that he says about himself. He might be more, but he can't be less. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answers and says to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many shall come in my name saying that I am Christ and shall deceive many and many false Christ shall arise and deceive many. In Matthew twenty four twenty three, then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Jesus Christ or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive even the elect. Behold, I told you before. Wherefore, if they say to you, Behold, he's in the desert, don't go. If he says, There he is in the secret chambers, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When Jesus comes, you're going to know it. You're not going to necessarily see it on CNN or Fox News. Does the truth matter? If the truth didn't matter so much, then why does the Bible devote the vast content of the revelation of God to the identity of the Messiah? To the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. If if truth doesn't matter, then why does the Bible give us so many warnings about false teachers and false teaching? You know, the true gospel is the message that Jesus Christ died for our sins that He rose from the grave, that He conquered death for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. He brings us forgiveness. He brings us a relationship with God the Father. He gives us eternal life, it says in Acts 26, 18, and Romans 6, 23, and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. The basis of this relationship is God's grace, God's undeserved kindness and favor, not anything we do. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says that you're saved by grace and that not of yourselves. If that's the case, then why would so many wicked, evil people tell you that in order to have a right relationship with God, you got to do what they say. Jesus might be more, but he can't be less than everything that the Bible says about him. By the way, it's an important question to ask. If you have a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, anyone you care about, ask them. Ask them the question. Tell me what you think about Jesus. In all of my years, I've never had a single person ever say nothing. I have no thoughts on Jesus whatsoever. Everybody has an opinion about him. It might be wrong. It might be inaccurate. It might be incomplete. But everybody has an opinion about him. And hopefully they'll return the favor and they'll ask you, who do you think he is? And I'm hoping you'll come up with the right answer. He has to be everything that he says he is. He has to be everything that the Bible says about him. He might be more, but he can't be less. And if you forget that, get this morning's CD and just hand it to him and say, Listen to this! Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we might know a lot about Jesus and we might not. We might know a little bit about Jesus. But Lord, we pray that what we do know is correct. That Lord, everything that the prophets said about Jesus has to be true and everything that Jesus said about himself has to be true. And Lord, we pray That you would awaken our hearts. Because we know that once we know the identity of Jesus, we come to grips with our own identity. That if Jesus is really the Savior, then we must be sinners in need of a Savior. And if Jesus is the forgiver of sin and the redeemer of mankind, then that must mean that we have a sin problem. But he can change the problem and he can forgive us and he can reconcile us to yourself. Lord, I pray for each and every person here that You would awaken in their hearts the truth about the identity of Jesus. That He has to be everything that He says that He is. In Jesus' name, Amen.